is, is it feasible that in the next 20, 30 years, or maybe even as if we're lucky 10 years, we're going to have a working uh, HIV vaccine? And if not, uh, shouldn't we stop spending awful loads of money on creation of uh, an, you know, impossible HIV vaccine and start using that money to uh, fund uh, more of the prevention uh, uh, approaches to control HIV with antiretroviral medications. Thank you. I'm going to give you a two-minute answer to a 45-minute lecture. <laughs> that I, you know, cause, cause you, you, All of your points are really extraordinarily important. Uh, and for those not following the HIV vaccine scene, it, there are really some very complicated issues here. The, the trial he's referring to is a 16,000-person trial that took place in Thailand a couple of years ago, the data of which just came out last year, which showed a 31 percent protection. Now, the reason why that is important, even though it was barely statistically significant, is that it was a real result in the first time in 23 years of testing vaccines that we've ever seen a positive signal. Now, a vaccine, it's very interesting, the whole field of vaccinology, which is something that I love very much because it's what we do in our institute, <laughs> is, is interesting because nature is your best ally. If, I, if we've developed vaccines against the great killers, smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, haemophilus influenza B, the reason I feel comfortable about the development of a vaccine for a disease, no matter how serious it is, that it is, is that nature provides the proof of concept that it is possible for the human body to defend itself against this particular disease, no matter how serious it is. I'll give you one example, smallpox, has a mortality of 15 to 20 percent. 85 to 80 percent of people spontaneously recover, eradicate the smallpox virus from the body, and are protected for life. So I am absolutely certain, or would have been, I wasn't born then, that you can actually make a smallpox vaccine. The same way you can make an influenza vaccine and a measles vaccine, because you look at what the body does naturally, and you say, I'm going to make a vaccine that would induce the precise response that the infection induces. All bets are off with HIV because the natural response to HIV is inherently inadequate to control the virus. So the old saying among infectious diseases, when you want to make a vaccine, mimic the virus. The one thing you don't want to do is to mimic the virus because the virus induces a response that's inadequate. So having said that, we went through a number of trials that were complete failures, not even a 1% efficacy. So we have a 30%, 31% efficacy that's real. So what we are working like crazy on, as it were, if I might use that word, is to try and find out what the correlate of immunity is. What did that vaccine induce in the body that was causing the protection, albeit in an unacceptably low Percentage. 31% is not a vaccine that you want to license and give out to anybody. You want, for regular infectious diseases, 90-95% protection like you have with influenza. I will take, with, with great gratitude, a 60% effective vaccine, but not a 30% effective vaccine. But the one thing I did learn after 23 years of trying, and HIV's been around for 28 years, is that I believe it's feasible now to develop a vaccine. And with the molecular techniques that we have to be able to identify neutralizing epitopes and scaffold them in a way that would induce 
a neutralizing response. I think we're going to get that. I can't tell you whether it's going to be five years, seven years, ten years. I can't do it. So that's the issue with the science. The point you make about the balance of should we stop vaccine research, that is an argument that is an argument that should not be had. It's sort of like playing one disease against another, playing one aspect of HIV against another. You absolutely need prevention. If the world were a perfect place, you wouldn't need a vaccine. No one would get HIV infected. But the issue of the integration of an infection in a fundamental function of life, namely sexuality, means that it's going to be very, very difficult to change behavioral patterns. So the way we look at it in the field of HIV is not a vaccine versus prevention. We look at it as a toolkit of prevention modalities, which in my mind, I hope seven years or 10 years from now, I'd be able to say we have a 60% effective vaccine. We have circumcision that works. We have condoms that people use. We have, we have circumcision. We have mother-to-child transmission. We have needle exchange. We have drug prevention programs. We have behavioral modification. We have abstinence where it's appropriate and doable. And we have behavioral modification when you can't do that. Those are the things that are going to bring HIV down to a negligible incidents in the world. So I wouldn't pit one against the other. It's enough to make a one-on-one -on -one impact with a patient, but how can we scale that so that there's accountability amongst Americans to actually care about their health? Uh, very important issue and a very tough one to change the stance that we currently have, which is really a sick care system into a health care system. But it's critical if we have any hope of the future in bending the cost curve and giving people the chance to live better, fuller lives without being cut down by chronic diseases or, or having their lives shortened by preventable conditions uh, that we come to grips with this. Um, and, and again, the incentives at the moment are all backwards. Uh, certainly for providers, prevention takes time. You need to sit down with somebody and kind of go through some educational steps about what it means to take good care of yourself. That's not reimbursed for. Uh, and so th there's really no reason that most providers would feel the system is asking them to do that. And so oftentimes it just gets skipped over. Um, and clearly, as we are going through this effort in healthcare reform, the focus on prevention, which sounds like it's moving in that direction, is going to need to be continually pushed upon. Part of it is that our prevention strategies haven't been all that well received uh, and maybe not all that well empowered because we've taken a lot of our prevention approaches as one size fits all and sort of tell everybody to do the same thing. And first of all, that's probably not the best use of resources. And second of all, it's easier for people to ignore us when we offer them something that sounds pretty generic. You wouldn't go into a shoe store and pick up a pair of shoes that wasn't your size, but we're kind of asking people to do that with their preventive care. Uh, here's where perhaps things that are happening scientifically in the area of personalized medicine might give us a chance to rewrite this particular story by offering people more individualized recommendations that are more relevant to them and are probably therefore more likely to motivate changes in health behavior. 
And there's, of course, one of those that is probably the strongest predictor of illness for most common conditions that we haven't been using, which is family medical history. And it's sort of a, a scandal that here is that readily, for most people, ascertainable body of data that rarely gets asked about and rarely gets incorporated into any plans for how to help that person focus on the things they're most at risk for. And on top of that now, as we get better and better in reading out things from the DNA analyses, uh, we're going to be able to make more and more precise predictions about that kind of individual risk. Uh, you can already now order from companies if you have a few hundred dollars, an estimate of your own risks for a couple dozen diseases. I've done that for myself just to see what the experience was like, and it actually was interesting. In some cases, it was even enough to change my health behavior. I think we are not taking full advantage of some of the new things that are coming along yet. But we have to be sure when we do so, we know what we're doing. This, from NIH's perspective, means we need to put even more effort than we have into the science of health behavior. And what is it that motivates people when given information to actually act upon it? I mean, some people are pretty cynical about this when it looks at cigarette smoking. And we've known for how long now that smoking is really bad for you, and yet we still have not succeeded in convincing people not to start or to quit if they already have. That's an addiction. That's a particularly tough one uh, to deal with. But we need to learn from that and apply you know, this kind of thinking process to health behavior in a broader way. So if we could do that, and that's going to take some careful clinical studies, some of which are getting underway, and if we could change the incentives so that the healthcare system really does focus on prevention instead of waiting for you to get sick, then maybe 10, 20 years down the road, we'd start to reap the harvest. Part of the problem is, though, you know, health insurance companies don't think in 10 or 20 year intervals. They want to know what's my bottom line this year. And investing in prevention is going to cost money in the short run in order to save it in the long run. And we've had a very narrow view in the way we've reimbursed uh, for healthcare in this country that's gotten in the way of actually taking on what should have been a benevolent effort, an idealistic effort, something that medicine's supposed to be all about to try to help people stay well. So we have to bring all of those things together. I think we're at least have a little momentum in that direction, but it's gonna take the energies and the determination of people like you and others in the room to make that come true. One other aspect of prevention. How many people in this room have gotten the H1N1 influenza vaccine? Raise your hand. Not bad. Not bad. Okay. Good. <laughs> about the average. <laughs> yeah. That's prevention also. Prevention. Um, I guess along those lines, um, I'm Brad. I'm a med student at NYU. Um, I just got back from Guatemala, and there the policy on vaccination for children is if your kid doesn't show up to get vaccinated, the government comes to your house and vaccinates your child. And um, with all of, like, after the rotations and seeing how many parents are now freaked out about, like, autism and thimerosal and all those other things, um, and I feel like it's reducing the efficacy and the number of kids that are being vaccinated, um, do you guys have any kind of strategy or opinion on how to, I guess, rectify or... Yeah. Yeah, you, you, first of all, as always, you go with the science, uh, but you also have to be really sensitive to the concerns of societies, particularly mothers, when you're dealing with, with infants and children. Um, but you have to get your message straight and be consistent. So th there is no doubt, scientifically, that thimerosal does not cause autism. There's no doubt that MMR you know, measles, mumps, rubella vaccination does not cause autism. Yet, uh, we don't know what causes autism. 
So, you know, rather, you know, the, the, the autism, the, the autism extremists vilify the scientists. We've got to be careful not to vilify the autism extremists, mm -hmm. but to try and help figure out what it is that causes autism. Vaccinations in children, and it's very interesting that, that they have, South America and Central America has great vaccination uh, uh, records because of doing the things you say. I mean, they do better than, than we do, and they have really good protection against, against childhood diseases. One of the problems, and, and I've just recently spent some time on this over the last few days with a contaminant that was in a vaccine that we had to make sure we did the right thing about not pulling a vaccine from the market that was saving a lot of lives. The rotavirus vaccine that you may have read about has a contaminant in it that has nothing to do with safety but the image of it is not particularly uh, encouraging to people who take vaccines. But the, the issue with vaccination is that we're the victims of our own success. When you virtually eliminated a disease from society, the only thing that you could think about is the possible harmful effect of the vaccine because you don't see measles around you, you don't see polio. When I was growing up, my friends were going in the hospital, coming out, being in iron lungs and walking with limps and having disfigured limbs. So the idea about being afraid of polio, that as soon as the polio vaccine became available, we all jumped to get it. Now that you look around in society and you don't see these diseases, that there is always the tendency of thinking more about the toxicities than about the, the benefit. And whenever things happen that are bad to kids, you always say, what happened? You, you, you want to look for a reason. When something terrible happens to your child, you, you, you look for a reason. It's human nature. I mean, is it me, my fault? I'm the parent. Is it something that happened? And what happens to every single child? That between X years and X years, they get vaccinated. So vaccine is the primary culprit for somebody who wants to latch on a reason for something bad happening. So we're, we're faced with a real messaging issue that we've got to just make sure we're transparent and that we're very scientific in our approach. Yeah, I met with all the autism advocacy organizations uh, a couple of weeks ago, a very intense meeting, as you can imagine, because some of them are absolutely convinced that there's a conspiracy uh, to hide the fact that vaccinations are the cause of this disease. And you can try to present the data and it is, it is not going to be well received because you're already seen as part of that conspiracy. But you can also see the pain on the faces of these parents, uh, and we don't know uh, what their lives are like uh, every day, wrestling with kids who have never really learned to interact with them at all, uh, who are constantly engaged in repetitive behaviors, who seem to be developing, some of them for a while, and then regressed, and nobody knows why. I think the most important thing we can do scientifically is to try to come up with what the answer really is, because right now we don't know. Maybe in about 10% we've come up with explanations. Many of them turn out to be genetic mutations. We need to figure out what the rest are, and we are maybe poised in the next two or three years to make some real advances in that because of new technologies that allow us to look at DNA and to look at the environment in new ways. I hope and pray that's going to give us uh, some insights into what this disease really is. The problem probably is going to turn out to be this is an incredibly heterogeneous collection of disorders and it has in common malfunctions of the synapses in the brain and there are a lot of ways a synapse can go wrong and it may be a common pathway for a very long list of conditions with different causes and that's going to be very hard to sort out and also very hard to come up with an intervention that works for all. You may have to have a hundred different interventions for a hundred kids with autism and that's going to take a long time.